Hello and welcome to the Living in Love and Faith podcast. In this first of two episodes, we'll be attempting the extremely ambitious, some might say impossible. Our core questions being, how do we actually hear God whilst approaching the major issues of human identity, sexuality, relationships and marriage? In the rattle and silence of our lives, what could God be saying as guide and influencer through scripture about our identities and sexuality? And how should we go about the serious endeavor of interpreting the Bible in a manner that, as the New Testament book of Romans implores, does no harm? My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster, and songwriter. Seeking answers, how do we hear God? A prayer of the 20th century Trappist mystic, Thomas Merton, anticipating the future state of a final resting place in God, emboldens us in the meantime to continue on the pilgrim's path to the country beyond words, beyond names. The Right Reverend Dr Pete Wilcox has been Bishop of Sheffield since 2017. With a degree in modern history from the University of Durham, he went on to train at Ridley Hall Theological College, Cambridge. Following a curacy in Teesside and as a team vicar in Gateshead, in recent times Pete Wilcox has served in two of England's great Anglican cathedrals, as Canon Chancellor at Lichfield and as Dean at Liverpool. Hurrah! With a doctorate in historical theology, he regards Bible teaching as his primary passion. The Right Reverend Dr Joe Bailey Wells is the Bishop of Dorking. An Old Testament scholar with a published commentary on the prophet Isaiah, her previous appointments have included various Cambridge teaching posts as well as a Duke Divinity School in North Carolina. Jo has degrees from the Universities of Cambridge, Minnesota and Durham in Natural Sciences, Intercultural Communication and Theology. The Reverend Dr Andy Angel is Vicar of St Andrew's Church, Burgess Hill in West Sussex. A former secondary school teacher, he spent four years in parish ministry in Dartford in Kent before moving on to train others for Christian service in the southeast of England. Andy is a former vice-principal of St John's Theological College, Nottingham, where he taught New Testament. He is the author of Intimate Jesus, The Sexuality of God Incarnate. The Reverend Marcus Green graduated from Oxford University with a degree in history and studied theology at Wycliffe Hall. He's currently rector of three rural parishes in North Oxfordshire, where he served since 2013. Previous to that, Marcus served the church in Western South Wales and city centre Oxford. His most recent book, The Possibility of Difference, offers a biblical affirmation of inclusivity. Before setting sail, let's consider St. Augustine's reflective overview. The Holy Scriptures were for him, intriguingly, our letters from home. Pete Wilcox, if we're to interpret the Bible as the LLF book proposes, as a school of righteousness, of justice and of love, how have we got to the point where there are such vast differences in what people understand the Bible to be saying about things like sexuality and the church's line on the sanctity of marriage? 
Thank you. I, I suppose part of the answer to that is that uh, the scriptures were written in another culture and in another time, and they don't always address directly the questions that arise in our culture and our time. And so different Christians come to different conclusions about how the scriptures apply to the situations uh, with which we're dealing now. The, the thing that unites us is that uh, we want to be reading the scriptures in a way which will align us more faithfully uh, to Jesus, to, to the life and death and resurrection. If it wasn't for any common commitment, Christians would just go their separate ways. We would just choose to read our Bibles our own way and not care what brothers and sisters who disagree with us think. What you paraphrased for us there is that, that, that Jesus is the, the divine prism through which the Old Testament and the New Testament can be read. As to the, the heterosexual biblical view of marriage, can you trace for us the, the biblical lineage from Old Testament to New Testament for the upholding of the matrimonial state? So Jesus had relatively little to say about sexual ethics, but he did have something to say about about marriage. And, and for, uh, for the Christian church, uh, Jesus' affirmation of the unity of a man and a woman um, in marriage, when he um, quotes from uh, Genesis chapter 2 uh, about a, a man and a woman becoming one flesh, uh, that has that has remained in um, the Christian traditions a definitive statement for how we understand marriage. Now, people are quite right to point out that not all the pages of the Old Testament from Genesis through the canonical books uh, reflect that kind of marriage. So Solomon famously had however many hundred wives and um, still more concubines. So there there isn't a uh, there really isn't a a simple a biblical witness to marriage, but for the Christian church, the small amount that Jesus did have to say on the subject has been definitive. Marcus Green. You ask how uh, different Christians use the uh, same scriptures and come out with different positions, um, and uh, and Pete gives a, a terrific uh, uh, outline of that, and, and also then talking about a specific example then and Jesus and marriage and how that works in the New Testament and I think one of the really important things is actually sometimes our, our starting points when we look at the same text we have different starting points and we have to address that so for example with that text with Jesus and marriage in the New Testament do we see the scripture as setting parameters or establishing boundaries is he saying like this, go and do it? Or is he saying like this and only like this? And as people, actually, sometimes it's down to character type. You read the same text and you have a very different starting point. And sometimes it can be as simple as that, how different Christians see exactly the same words in front of them and end up in a very different destination. And the angel? I think it's important that the intellect rigor rigorously engages with scripture. I think it's also important that scripture rigorously engages the intellect. I mean, none of us in this conversation are unaware that there are huge exegetical debates uh, around all the tricky scriptures. And there is that really rigorous exploration of the text. But at the same time, we have to be open to the text rigorously exploring us.
Joe Bailey Wells. We think we read the text, but we kid ourselves because actually I think the text reads us if we will let it. And, and that's why we pray before we read scripture. And that's why in the end, scripture is about helping us engage with God. You know, it, it isn't the idol. It isn't God itself. Anybody can read scripture from any perspective and God can speak to them through it. And I think the questions we bring to scripture will reflect the questions that uh, the answers we find from scripture. An academic might come with very different questions to my next door neighbour who's eager to discover if God is really love. Just a quick interjection. Um, uh, I remember once um, when I was sitting there uh, praying one day, asking God to speak to me about my life as I opened the pages of my scripture, my daily Bible reading one day. And the Lord speak to me about what's going on in my life today from this. And I really, it's one of those moments, one of those very few moments in my life, but it was really clear as anything. I really felt God speak extraordinarily clearly to me and just said, Marcus, for once in your life, will you read this book as if it's about me? And that was an extraordinary, just corrective. And that change was fundamental. Leaving aside the intense and integral higher consciousness scriptures, not least the books of Ezekiel and Revelation, the Bible is an interweaving narrative of humans hearing God in their own varied circumstances. Joe Bailey Wells, let's concentrate on the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who, whom you've studied at length. What were the circumstances in which he heard God? Oh, that's quite a complicated answer, Stuart. I bet that's why you've asked me that one, because it is thought that the book of Isaiah did not spring from one person in one place and time. It probably stemmed from at least three, and one of those might have been a community of people descended from the first Isaiah. So I'm going to give you a complicated answer, which is to say I think it probably began in 800 BC in a time of great prosperity. I think it continued in circumstances of exile um, up to 100, 150 years later. Uh, and then there's a sort of coming out of exile that might have been foretelling the future or might have been spoken from a position after exile. I'm quite sure at the time there were many who heard Isaiah preaching or reading or, or read the words of Isaiah who said, Puh, you know, I don't really believe this is from God. But perhaps 150 years later, when what Isaiah talked about was perceived to have come true, they took it more seriously. And so I think even from the moment of delivery, the word of God is something that evolves through testing. And the very fact that it now is part of our canon, when presumably all kinds of preachers' words that floated about did not get saved, preserved, recorded, enabled by the canonical process. So we have the testimony of two and a half thousand years worth of people of faith who have read the words of Isaiah and heard God in them and through them. And what is it that appeals to you 
about specifically Isaiah that made you study him, them? Two things. One is that it's often called the fifth gospel, which is to say people see in that book of the Old Testament, perhaps more than any other, the, 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 the person of Christ foretold. And of course, I come to the Old Testament as a Christian. That makes it really exciting for me. The, the second thing is a bit more subtle. I remember somebody saying to me uh, when I was a student, I can't understand if the Old Testament is the word of God, why it's so complicated, why it's so hard to understand. Why would God make his word so difficult? And I think Isaiah is both exciting and really complicated. And again, that draws me in to want to wrestle. The harder something is, the more I think, you know, my blood runs high and I sort of want to contend with it and, you know, experience it. And I think on the one hand, it is really complicated, but actually on another level, a sort of meta level from the text, if you stand back, the big picture is quite simple. But we can get lost in the words. Pete Wilcox. It sometimes comes as a surprise to people to discover that um, almost the single uh, most frequently repeated text in uh, the Old Testament, which for many people is uh, wrongly conceived of as a, a, a as testifying to a, a, an angry, wrathful God, um, is this text. Uh, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, and insofar as uh, I see those qualities personified in Jesus, uh, I would say that uh, the whole revelation of the character of God in the Old Testament points to the coming uh, of Jesus, to the coming of one who is, who is gracious and merciful and abounding in love. It is to do with the idea of God saying, this is me. Listen. The reason that so many Christians have no difficulty identifying with uh, so many of the characters in the Old Testament is because they encountered the same God as we have encountered in Christ. Um, so, um, you know, in the story of uh, the Lord meeting Moses, for, for Christians as a kind of recognition, uh, yes, we, we, we can relate to that because... We relate to the same God in the same way. How we read the Bible, its laws, its poems, its prophecies, its teachings, could be said to be shaped by those who taught it to us in the first place. So presumably that means we may have picked up some, shall we say, blemishes of interpretation. How can we recognise what is authentic exposition of Scripture and what is not Andy, part of me wants to take the fifth <laughs> because there are so many uh, fascinating things there that I could bang on about. Authentic according to whom? There are uh, quotes, unquote, accepted methods of reading the Bible, for example, within its historical context, um, paying proper attention to the original languages and the canons of philology. Uh, and, and we could go on. Uh, some of these uh, accepted methods have been questioned by various hermeneutical schools, probably in the latter half of the 20th century, starting with liberation theology coming out of Brazilian and Peruvian shanty towns. 
I would hope, going back to Marcus, authentic for God. But that's a very, very messy community process in reality. One of my favourite images, and it was the, the image which I studied for my doctorate, is God coming in the storm and bringing order out of chaos. Because from very early life, living with cancer, mental illness in my birth family, spending a while at a tender age in a shantytown ministering, I've seen an awful lot of chaos. And I love it when I see God bring order into this chaos. So if you're asking for my understanding of what's authentic, it's okay. As I study scripture, as I listen to the great and the good, what am I hearing that's building on the experience that I've had that scripture seems to speak about? Particularly at the moment, because it strikes me, particularly with young people, there's a lot of uh, beyond cynicism. You know, life is pointless. What actually builds a delight in what God's created? And what builds a delight in God recreating wholesome lives? Those are some of the things that I personally look for when I'm looking for moving on from what may have been bad teaching. But at the same time as uh, I think about other people's blemish teaching, I need to recognise that as a vicar, I might be giving blemish teaching too. I think that's a terrific answer, Andy. I really love your answer. I really, really do. And I think the way you end there, it's the fruit, isn't it? That's how you tell. Is this good exposition? Is it blessing people's lives? Does it does it have the scent of Jesus about it in the results it produces in people's lives? Uh, and that's, Andy, I love that answer. Thank you. I couldn't agree more, brother. <laughs> this could be LLF in action. It is, it is. We still don't agree over sexuality. Oh, absolutely. But, but, but this, we love each other. This absolutely is where we agree. Peace going to you during your long, and I, I, I mean this respectfully, your long Christian life, having worked in really quite challenging areas. What were those moments of transcendent teaching for you when you heard it? You thought, yes, that... That clicks. Those moments do come, and um, and I can call, I can call some to mind moments when a new understanding of God has has been quite transformative and and been a turning point for life. But it's often much more incremental than that. Uh, and I want to pick up what Marcus was saying about familiarity with Scripture. Um, I find a lot of Christians are quite nervous about their competence in reading the Bible, they fear that it requires an intelligence or an education which they don't have. So I've been living in Sheffield for three years now, um, and I'm, I'm pretty much familiar with the city of Sheffield now, and I could with confidence guide any of you from my house to the cathedral church. When I first moved to Sheffield, that was beyond me because I wasn't familiar with the layout. I, I'm no more intelligent than I was three years ago. Probably brain cells have died away. Um, and I'm, I'm no more educated, but I am more familiar with the city. I've begun to learn some of its rat runs. And that means that I'm better placed to tell you what is authentic to Sheffield and what isn't. And my my wish for the LLF project, one of them is that we will we will 
once again grow in confidence in our familiarity with Scripture because the more familiar individual Christians are with their scriptures, the better place they will be to be able to tell the difference between what's authentic and what's not. Joe, uh, blemishes of interpretation. How have you unblemished some of yours? I was raised in a fairly conservative evangelical Bible teaching context where I learnt that men exercised leadership and men taught scripture and yet when I came to study scripture, I had to reread everything I'd been given to read before and came to a different conviction very cautiously. I wasn't sort of strident about it, but I just had an inkling of a wondering that actually the givens might not be given. And as you can tell, I've come to a different view. How did that happen? I think incrementally by reading and rereading it wasn't an act of rebellion where i sort of threw out baby with bathwater and started again i don't think one can start again mm. but one revisits texts and my sense of vocation stood on that understanding of scripture and i think in conversation with different people and i mean people in varying positions really vital for me to hear the challenges to where I was leaning then uh, and quite a bit of prayer and a sense of risking what the spirit was saying even when I wasn't sure uh, standing apart from some of the people who had raised me which felt like an act of disloyalty uh, I gradually found the courage to walk in a new direction. How did you personally then deal with some of the the criticism uh, critics of women's ministry, of women bishops, some of it bordering on the invective. If I got cross with them, I tried to um, deal with my anger before going back to talk to them. I did an awful lot of shouting at God with it, but trying to pray for those people, having set aside the frustration or the anger. And then trying to have a conversation in which fears were set aside and we continue to listen to one another. The beginning of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey is a cinematic homage to the opening of the Book of Genesis. Three minutes of black featureless screen underscored by brooding aerial music or as the verses describe the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Andy Angel, let's go back to the origins of the text. In your book, Intimate Jesus, you make the point that God incarnate as the man Jesus experienced a male sexuality. What can we glean from the Gospels as to how he expressed that personally and culturally? Not an awful lot. There are one or two hints, I think, in John's Gospel. Writing that book started with looking at a particular verse in John chapter 4, where Jesus sent the disciples off to get a picnic, uh, and he stayed at a well. He's met a woman there. The disciples come back, and it says that they were astounded that he was speaking with a woman, and 
none of them dared to ask the question, what are you after or why are you speaking with her? You read the commentators, they all say, ah, this is because a rabbi shouldn't speak with a woman. What the commentators don't say is that rabbis shouldn't speak with women because those conversations are off limits just in case they sexually transgress. And John seems to drop a hint here that the disciples are seeing Jesus as sexual. Um, it's a hint he's dropped earlier in the gospel when he says the word became flesh. It's really interesting that he says flesh rather than man or human being. And the context there is about people being born not by blood or by the will of the flesh or by the will of man. Will of the flesh there is referring to sexual desire. Next verse, we have the word made flesh. Well, there's a little echo there of sexual desire that I think is brought out where we have the disciples trying to avoid um, the awkward situation of Jesus maybe chatting up a woman by the well. You look at this story of the woman at the well and it uses a classic betrothal story form. Guy goes to a foreign country, stops at a well, meets woman at well, woman offers him a drink, uh, guy accepts the drink, woman waters the guy's camels, uh, woman takes guy home, by the end of the evening they're betrothed. And John plays on this story and as he plays on this story, he draws out a number of things. One of the things is that Jesus is not the regular guy of the story. He seeks the woman's salvation rather than marriage. The woman is a woman who's had a bad experience in her relationships. She's had five husbands. We don't know whether they died. We don't know whether they divorced her. We don't know what's happened but we do know that she's had what most of us would call a difficult life and yet in the story we find that in encountering Jesus she finds salvation and it's suggested by many commentators that this woman is probably feeling on the margins of society or outcast and yet when she encounters Jesus she goes back and tells everybody in town, he's told me everything I've ever done. Somehow the encounter with Jesus enables her to own who she is, own her past, own her story. And I think here that in playing with the themes of sexuality, John's suggesting that in our encounter with Jesus, there's reconciliation for broken sexuality. Joe, there's a, a particular profundity in that story that, Andy has been relating in as much as one, the woman was a Samaritan and two, she was a woman. It's a story that deeply resonates with me, Stuart. In particular, it fulfills that type scene from the Old Testament. You all get scenes at wells that are risque. He's going out of his way to speak to someone that others disapproved of. In effect, he sees value, he sees virtue, she becomes the first evangelist in John's Gospel. And I think it's utterly remarkable that somebody who was an outsider, somebody who was frowned on, somebody who was marginalised, somebody who, who was the classic sinner, if you like, a very honest sinner, I might say so, becomes the vehicle for the Gospel to her community. And it's a community of outsiders. I think that's a hugely significant text. I haven't really seen it to be about sexuality 
But I do see it as Jesus risking his reputation for those that others disapproved of. And I think that has resonance for our conversation here. Taking that phrase of Joe's, community of outsiders, here's, here's a question for you all about living and expressing our sexualities. What does the LLF book have to say to LGBTI plus Christians who wish to live the Christ way, but also celebrate their sexual beings to the full? Marcus. I think the really important thing that needs to be heard is that um, the Bible is a gift from God that includes everyone. I was really interested to hear Jo's story about her journey, her vocation and and the changes that she had to work her way through. I'm in my early 50s. I've been out as a gay man for about 10 years now. Uh, and that process happened because I had a major breakdown. And, um, uh, and in that time, I had to work out really carefully, actually, how I, as uh, an evangelical in the church, could continue to work could I continue to work as an ordained minister because I had a, a really conservative understanding of sexuality and I went back to scripture and going um, is where I'm from where I am and if it is that's fine I will stop but as I read and reread I actually understood that there was a prior starting point that was absolutely fundamental and that is God loves me and as I read that as my starting point and reading through so much of scripture and starting and working and going again, I understood that actually the things that I thought were points to stop me, points to push me out of the church, were the very points that drew me back. So uh, what does LLF say to uh, LGBT Christians? It says this, we're here. We are part of the church. We are part of the conversation. And the Bible keeps us as part of the conversation because we're loved. Although sometimes we feel like others and outsiders, like that woman in uh, the story from John chapter 4. Actually, Jesus talks to us as much as everybody else. Pete, you're nodding vigorously there to uh, what Marcus has just been saying. Would you like to yeah. add anything else? My own um, hope is that every single reader of the LLF resources, every single listener to these podcasts will discover an absolute universal affirmation of their dignity and value as a human being created in the image of God. And Marcus has been very, very good, not least in the biblical uh, working group, of hammering that point home to us. Every single human being created in the image of God is of infinite value and worth. However, I also hope that every single person to engage with the LLF resources will find that they do not simply get an affirmation of their convictions, but a considerable challenge in, in as well. That's to say, I don't think anyone who engages with these resources will find all these resources comfortable. Joe, I hope it brings both conservatives and liberals, put those in quote marks, wherever we are on the spectrum, to come back to scripture. Those who land on key texts as if those are the simple answer, I would say they need to look again at the, at the meta-narrative, at the wider principles within which those verses fit. There's a wonderful uh, 
conclusion that I first came across when I read the Windsor Report a few years back, which says it takes the whole people of God to understand the whole word of God. And that, crudely, is to say liberals need conservatives to read scripture well and conservatives need liberals to read scripture well. We all need each other. And Andy, uh, to those who have their own vulnerable, painful stories from the LGBTI plus community, what would you say to an individual who says, I feel as though LLF hasn't included me enough? I would say that if the Church of England is true to its processes, then you should do what the Church of England has always done when it's done its job properly, and that is to walk with Christ. We've got to go to Jesus. And I think I'd want to draw on on my own experiences of sexual brokenness. Uh, I was abused as a kid um, by a friend of the family and remind myself of the fact that Jesus can walk with, Jesus can speak into, and Jesus can heal however confused the church might be and might remain. Back in November 2010, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, posed a pertinent, almost plaintive question to the governing body of the Church of England General Synod. He asked, how is it that people who read the same Bible and share the same baptism could come to such diverse conclusions about human sexuality? Marcus Green, how do you respond to that statement? In my Christian walk, I get to know God better every day. I see God in other people more and more and more. People that I've written off, people I've disagreed with, people I'm not sure about, people who are different. And where once I would have turned away and not spoken and been frightened of people, now I turn to an engaging conversation and find treasure in other people. Difference and disagreement are not bad things. One final question for you all. Your bishops and priests serving an institution, a family that you love and in which you have invested your lives. In the long life of the Church of England, how important in the history of the Church is this LLF moment. Pete. The Church of England is an extraordinarily resilient institution and there are many things at this moment which make its future uncertain or could make us feel uncertain about its future. We're, we're speaking um, by teleconference on Zoom uh, in the midst of a Covid pandemic uh, because it's not safe for us to meet physically together. And uh, who knows what the implications of this pandemic will be for the institution of the Church of England. But within the contemporary context, um, I really do feel that this is a vital moment in the long-standing debate over human sexuality. Uh, we cannot allow the poverty of a discussion of the last 30 20, 10 years uh, to continue. Joe Bailey-Wells. 
it's a way to come together, if you like, to set aside our prior convictions at the door in order to encounter one another. And I think when we do that genuinely with an openness, we will be transformed. (laughs) I've come to a place where, frankly, I'm not interested in winning an argument I'm much more interested in protecting and enabling brothers and sisters who I perceive to be in a fragile, vulnerable position, enabling them to be effective disciples, enabling them to take their place fully as accepted members of the church. Andy, the idea, Joe's idea of it being a community of enabling and healing as manifested through the LLF materials. Would would you agree with that? Not necessarily, no. Looking around the world uh, and only at Anglican brothers and sisters, uh, we've seen that churches have divided, uh, that churches are reformulating in new ways. We've seen that the, the questions that we've looked at Um, largely around gay marriage, have not been resolved. But one of the things that I do find encouraging is that we have just about remained in communion as Anglicans. And I think that LLF is the next stage of the process in the Church of England, and we mustn't be afraid of saying, we may have more Anglican diversity in the UK than we have hitherto experienced. And it may just be that that kind of diversity in the UK helps us with the healing. And I hope that one of the things that LLF enables us to do is to look beyond institutional unity. I hope that we won't allow any idolatry of institution to prevent us from seeking that deeper unity and I've actually got quite good strong hope that LLF has laid the kind of foundations of conversation that would enable that to go forward. Marcus Green. I'm not a fan of division because I don't know where I fit in division in the church. Uh, I'm a gay man and an evangelical. Um, If there is division in the church I, I don't know where that puts me. Um, I'm a fan of Anglicanism because it's full of difference. I love being part of God's family. LLF for me um, has been a really complex process emotionally, quite difficult at times, quite glorious at times. Um, Andy and I have had lots of meetings together and we've had really interesting conversations. I think this one has been Uh, really quite typical but in the real difference we've also had real heart-to-heart agreement and I'm not a fan of division that puts us in different places because what keeps us together Jesus that's exactly my point what keeps us together is Jesus not particular institutional constructs I'd also like just to chip in the first thing that Marcus did on telling me where he was because we used to be students together many years ago uh, uh, college was uh, we had a big hug and there have been a few of those too 
no, it's not been perfect, but actually that's really important. And something where we see each other, um, something where we see each other and state that we're all equals together in God's created order and in Christ's beloved church is wonderful. Let's see where we go next. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to Marcus Green, Andy Angel, Joe Bailey-Wells and Pete Wilcox. Stay tuned for the second part of this podcast, What God May Be Saying Through the Bible. If you'd like to rate or even review this podcast, then don't be bashful, bash on. And there are further resources available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thank you.